Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Aristotle, and I'm going to be talking to you about contract law. I'm creating this content primarily as a study aid. I have a background in writing and content, and I find it easy to remember things if I treat them as content. Hopefully, others will benefit from this style of study. However, it goes without saying that the content of this and any future pieces are based entirely on my opinion, and may contain errors or tangential rants. As I mentioned, this content will be focused on contract law in particular. I hope, however, to cover other areas of law in the future, as and when they come up, or take my fancy. So, let's get started. Contracts. What are they? There are a number of different definitions for contracts, and depending on where you live and what language you speak, you may have a completely different definition to others. For my purposes, I'll be using the definitions provided in Thomson Reuters, 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 who knows, because I like it. Uh, the definition runs as follows. A contract is a legally binding promise, written or oral, by one party to fulfill an obligation to another party in return for consideration. A basic binding contract must comprise of four key elements. Offer, acceptance, consideration, and intent to create legal relations. Now here, offer and acceptance split into two stages, while at other times, and in other quotes, and in other definitions, they may be combined into the covering phrase, agreement. Contracts are an integral aspect of our society, both in terms of our legal history as a common law nation, obviously this will not apply to everyone who is studying contract law, but for those of us lucky enough to call England home, you can gain some idea of how deep contract law runs in our history by considering that we are still studying the application of laws that predate the United States of America by around 100 years. I, of course, refer to every law student's favourite Act of Parliament, the Statute of Frauds 1677, which I imagine will be featuring in a number of future pieces of content. You yourself will have entered into hundreds, if not thousands, of contracts without even realising it, as will your ancestors going back as far as there has been society. You enter into a contract every time you buy or sell goods, catch a bus, eat at a restaurant, or otherwise do any of the day-to-day -day things that make life, life. The study of contract law. Unlike some other areas of law, contract law is relatively unified in terms of legal principles. We don't encounter a large number of niche or specialized variations within contract law. Obviously, large number is relative. In relation to the case of, and please forgive my pronunciation, Kehave NV v. Bremer, Handel Gesellschaft, MBH, 1976, Lord Roskill said, In principle, it is not easy to see why the law relating to contracts for the sale of goods should be different from the law relating to the performance of other contractual obligations, whether charter properties or other types of contract. Sale of goods law is but one branch of the general law of contract. It is desirable that the same legal principles should apply to the law of contract as a whole, and that different legal principles should not apply to different branches of that law. In effect, what Lord Roskill, and again apologies for any mispronunciations, is saying is that it is desirable that a uniform approach to contracts be developed. Unfortunately, contract law is not as simple as we might hope. 
which in itself is fine. And if it were too straightforward, the world wouldn't need lawyers to interpret it. However, it does mean that we will need to consider a range of factors beyond the letter of the law. The nature of contracts is that the only time contract law is really required is when contracts are at risk of not being kept or have already been broken. In an ideal world where we could trust everyone as much as we would like to think ourselves trustworthy, we would not need contract laws. This is what differentiates contract laws from contracts themselves. Contract law is more or less a set of rules that everyone who enters into a contract should abide by, and as such provides a number of options to remedy any issues that arrive within the legal framework, the options of which we will get into at a later date. For now, we may find some value in improving our understanding of the background of contract laws, and a good place to start is with what preceded them. This means the cultural, historical, legislative, and often moral situation surrounding their development. This is valuable to us as students to cover now, because later on in our exploration of contract law, we will probably need to compare one system of contract law to others, both in terms of jurisdiction of law, but also different types of law within the same jurisdiction, especially those of us who are studying the Open Universities module W202, which will cover contract law and tort law. A brief history of contract law. In order to understand the position that contract law is in today, we should take a short trip back in time to see where it all began. Well, maybe not that short. Let's take a look at our quote again. A contract is a legally binding promise, written or oral, by one party to fulfill an obligation to another party in return for consideration. Now, let's examine a few of the words here that we will go into more detail on in the future contents, but it might be worth getting a understanding of before we delve any further into the history of contracts. Legally binding, we will take to mean enforceable by the prevalent societal law for this exercise, so basically whoever is in charge and makes the rules. Written or oral will be given in writing or verbally. Obligation, we will take to mean a duty or requirement. And consideration for now, we will treat as something of value. Modern contract law is based on a mixture of common law and legislation, as most laws in the UK are. The origins of these systems go back many years, as does the continental-style civil law. Unsurprisingly, most legal systems have a bit of a history. For example, we know that Plato will have broadly agreed with modern methods of settling a contract dispute. If a man fails to fulfill an agreed contract, unless he had contracted to do something forbidden by law or decree, or gave his consent under some iniquitous pressure, or was involuntarily prevented from fulfilling his contract because of some unlooked-for accident, an action for such an unfulfilled agreement should be brought in the tribal courts, if the parties have not previously been able to reconcile their differences before arbitrators, their neighbours, that is. You'll thank me for not trying to do an ancient Greek accent there. This is shockingly in line with modern practice. It covers current requirements for a contract to be rendered void, such as breaking existing law or not being entered into freely, and also provides an argument for defence. Additionally, the connections between antiquity and modern-day law can be found in some of the most important documents ever conceived. The Old Testament, the Torah, and the Quran all include guidance on contracts. This is how deep the concept runs in cultures across the world. Not to mention, I'm sure, many cultures that I am unfortunately quite ignorant of. 
But let us go back even further. References to sealing contracts are made in the Epic of Gilgamesh, dating back to 1800 BC. And really, this should be of no surprise. For as long as people have traded, married, and sued for peace, and declared war, they have made contracts with one another. It is likely, then, that contracts date back as far as the dawn of civilization itself, and may, in my very humble opinion, be the basis for civilization. As much as walls and fields of grain will lend security to the people of ancient Mesopotamia, they are themselves insecure concepts, if not backed up by contracts and, in turn, the rule of law. But, Aristotle, you devilishly handsome rogue, I hear you say, how can laws from 12,000 years ago, laws that predate the domestication of dogs, have much of an influence on modern laws? Well, I'll tell you. You see, we benefit, those of us who, as said above, are lucky enough to live in a nation with a very old legal system, from heaps and heaps of development, debate, evolution, and improvement in our legal system. I use the word improvement with a general optimism. Our legal system has evolved from a tribal basis to the international juggernaut it is today. And, on the way, it has been influenced by practically everyone. The Romans, the Greeks, the Saxons, the Angles, the Vikings, the Normans, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, and later, of course, the Americans. That is nothing compared to the cultural movements our legal system has found its way through, chief among them the Magna Carta, the Reformation, the Great Schism, the Restoration, the Renaissance, a few civil wars, countless other wars, invasion, conquest, crusades, colonialism, empire, abolition, global enfranchisement, global wars, the loss of empire, and of course the EU, and now Brexit. Obviously, all of these, and the infinite number of other influences I am not learned enough to think of, will have had an impact on our legal system. But one thing can be found in every influence, namely that our law is directly linked to our culture, and specifically, our cultural morality. We all know that if John promises to do a task for Janet, and he doesn't, he has done something bad. But can we explain why? Why do we believe not keeping a promise is a bad thing? Not all cultures treat the breach of contract as being as severe, as slight as others do. Who is to say who is correct? This is the kind of thinking that I am anticipating we're going to need to do to get those top marks. Ultimately, it all comes down to culture for me, and that's something for a completely different piece of content than this. However, it is useful to remember that whenever we make a statement in our studies indicating that something is wrong or bad or unlawful or unethical, we should always be aware of where that judgment comes from. And even morality set down 12,000 years ago can still be present in our laws of today. So now I've bored you with my horrible history summary, let's return to the broader concept of a contract. Entering a contract. As set out in our definition, which I'll repeat again, a contract is a legally binding promise, written or oral, by one party to fulfill an obligation to another party in return for consideration. A basic binding contract must comprise of four key elements, offer, acceptance, consideration, and intent to create legal relations. Now, as I mentioned earlier, those first two elements are in some definitions and opinions combined into one, uh, for simplicity's sake. So, we should understand the concept of something being bound in law. Whether that body of law is tribal, religious, common, or legislative, something we need to understand that might not be clear in our definition, 
is that as well as creating an obligation for one party in return for consideration, it is also at the same time creating rights for both parties. These rights become important when we look at methods of enforcement and solution for disputes. They are also important when it comes to the requirements for the actual formation of a contract, such as unfair terms, misrepresentation, and fraud. As Plato told us, when looking at whether or not a contract should be enforced, we need to consider the terms under which it was forged. The basic founding concept to keep in mind in English contract law is that we have a great deal of freedom to enter into contracts willingly. Even if those contracts are poorly advised, however, once we enter into them, we submit to the authority of the law which, unless we have evidence of why a contract should be void, I made a mistake doesn't usually cut it, then we should expect to have to follow through with the contract. In future content, I will talk at great length of the methods by which a person can enter a contract. For now, let us consider the recipe for a contract. Contracts, like many things in life, can be extremely varied. And although standardized contracts have become quite popular in the last few hundred years, there is still a rich amount of variety. However, for simple contracts, the process is fairly standardized and not too dissimilar from that set out in our quote. Firstly, the parties have to come to an agreement of terms. These are the rules of the contract by which they both agree to proceed. Usually, this is done by one party making an offer to another, who can then choose to agree or accept, provide a counteroffer, or decline the offer entirely. We will need a whole other piece on the concept of when an offer is accepted, and it's very interesting, but for now, we will treat this as the general definition provided in our original quote of offer and acceptance, and also refer to it as agreement, which would be the collective term for both offer and acceptance. Hopefully I've not butchered that explanation. The top line, however, is that in most cases, an offer is made by the offerer, offeror, depending on how you pronounce your rose, to the offeree. If the offeree, the person who is being made the offer, seeks to amend that offer in any way, such as via a counteroffer, then the original offer is no longer valid. The agreement must be 100% identical on both sides. This creates some interesting case studies and uh, legal thoughts, which we'll get to at another time. The second requirement for a contract is that once all parties have come to an agreement, an offer is made, an offer is accepted, an agreement, they must both intend to be legally bound by that agreement under law. So no entering into agreements with bad faith or with the intent to renege on them. This is where contract law can become a very lucrative profession. Once a client realizes that they must submit themselves up to the judgment of the law, which for many is an intimidating and faceless prospect, they might feel it's worth paying an expert to have a peruse and make sure they're not giving away their firstborn son. Finally, the parties must provide what is called valuable consideration. They spoke previously about consideration and used the shorthand value. While this is suitable for our purposes here today, the real distinction we need to look at is in the use of the word valuable. Now these two words are very similar. You may rightly ask, can you have a valuable value? Well, yes. Those of you familiar with programming and a myriad of other such interests will know that a value is often just used as a shorthand for something. Um, something that another thing may possess, for example. Add on top of this the fact that value, how most of us use it at least, is a very subjective concept. 
and I'm sure you can have no end of debates on this topic. The key relevance of the word valuable is that the court will not usually consider what is called a gratuitous contract, i.e. one with no consideration, as valid. For example, if I promise to pick you up from the airport, but ask to receive nothing and receive nothing, then you have no case against me for breach of contract. I also just generally advise you don't ask me to pick you up from the airport. So a consideration will be something given or promised in return for the obligation. Now there's a whole host of information we can go into in terms of when a promise is a promise and what happens if it's a future promise and what happens if it's a promise based on something which has already happened. Uh, that's for a future piece of content. Most commonly, a consideration will be a payment. The type of consideration varies, however, depending on the type of contract. Again, we will cover this at some time in the future. All you need to know for this very top-level review is that something of value must be offered in exchange for the obligation as set out in the contract, if you refresh your mind as to our quote. In short, you don't get something for nothing. Now, often in law it seems that words we commonly use as laymen have different meanings in the courtroom. One such word is value. To many of us, value will be used in conjunction with other words, such as good or bad. That offer of ten widgets for three pounds is a very good value. Or, we get the Tesco's value brand widgets, they're just as good as the brand name ones. In contract law, the valuable consideration does not need to be adequate, and this is the key distinction when we talk about valuable. This means that consideration given has to have some value, not enough, not an adequate amount, not a sufficient amount, not a fair amount, not an advantageous amount, just an amount. As we set out in our second requirement for a contract to be entered into, uh, a contract should be entered into freely. And that usually means that the court couldn't care less how bad of a deal you make. This is why if you really wanted to, you could freely enter into a contract to sell your house for one pound. Perhaps as a raffle has become somewhat popular, that may be an interesting subject for us to look at further down the line. Now, with the exception of certain headline-grabbing opportunities in Liverpool and Stoke that I'm aware of, houses rarely sell for one pound. And certainly, you would probably not consider selling yours for so little. But if you did, as long as you entered into it freely and agreed the terms of the sale of property, it would be a legitimate contract, I think. For example, and I'm using the American comedian pronunciation here, in Chappelle and Co. Limited versus Nestle Co. Limited, 1960, the House of Lords found that used chocolate bar wrappers were indeed part of a valid consideration for the purchase of a gramophone record. This sounds like quite an interesting case that we should explore at a later date, but it does emphasize that the material doesn't have to be of good value to be part of a consideration. It is also worth bearing in mind in that regard that usually consideration will have to be material. Promises with no economic value are in a much less defined area. This is highlighted in a, again, quite interesting case of White v. Blewett, 1853, in which a son requested that his father discharge his debts and, in return, he would promise not to bore his generous dad. While many of us would happily give away our worldly possessions for the promise of never being bothered by our family again, this would not in all likelihood be considered valuable consideration. 
Well, I've been talking for quite a long time, and this is my first attempt at this, so I think we'll call it there. Uh, while I hope you have found this somewhat interesting, it's the first of its kind, and the format I'll probably change a lot. Next time I'll be picking a particular aspect of contract law, now that we've got the uh, broad background out of the way. Uh, most likely the types of contract or the requirements of offer and acceptance might be a good one. Thank you for listening, I'm Harris Tuttle. Be sure to check out my blog, www.harristottle.co.uk, and I also hope to put a uh, modified version of this podcast up onto YouTube with slides and citations and quotes and all that good stuff. Uh, if you have any feedback or any interesting ideas for content, then please do get in touch. Oh.